Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Good day, good people. My name is Brad King, and you are listening to the Downtown Riders Jam podcast, which is part of the Solid Listen Podcast Network. Max the Dog and I are coming to you from deep inside the jam bunker, and today we're here with a very special and very important jam. Because of that, we're going to change up this introduction a little bit. If you have been a listener to the program, this is going to sound strange to you. If you're new, ignore everything you've just heard. Today on the program, we have a very special guest. Dr. Cynthia Miller Idris. She's here because her book, Hate in the Homeland, The New Global Far Right, came out at the end of last year. But she's also here because we had a very interesting discussion on Twitter a couple weeks ago about militias, right-wing terrorist organizations in America. Now, if you follow us on Twitter, you know sometimes late at night I get a little feisty and I was complaining about the way the national media discusses right-wing terrorism, particularly using the term militia instead of terrorist when talking about acts of aggression, like, say, storming the Capitol. And that's when Dr. Miller Idris jumped into my conversation. Now, I didn't know who she was, and if you know anything about the Internet, you know that could mean this turned badly. But I've been on the Internet for a really long time, my friends, and so before I responded to her, I went and looked at her bio, and here's what I found. She's an award-winning author and scholar of extremism and youth radicalization, She directs the Polarization and Extremism Research and Innovation Lab, which is called Peril, at the American University, where she's also a professor in the School of Public Affairs and in the School of Education. She's the Director of Strategy and Partnerships for the UK-based Center for Analysis of the Radical Right and serves on the International Advisory Board of the Center for Research and Extremism in Oslo. She's testified before Congress, She's briefed the UN Security Council's Counterterrorism Committee on white supremacist extremism and white nationalist terrorism, and she frequently serves as a keynote speaker and expert panelist on trends in white supremacist extremism. So what I'm saying is she knows way more about this topic than I do and way more about it than you do. And we had a really smart conversation on Twitter where I invited her to come on the program not to do what we normally do here, which is have a freewheeling discussion about life, but very specifically to talk about her work. So what you're going to hear over the next hour is a discussion about right-wing terrorism, how young people are recruited, and the impact of networks like QAnon that is having on our country. And these, in my head, are three of the most important threats that this country is facing. I come at this from this sort of old-school, wired, 20 years ago, Um, dawn of the web kind of guy. And so a lot of what I was trying to work out was how we ended up here. And she's fantastic, and I think that this is important for everybody to listen to. Now, before we get to all that, we still have a little business to cover here in the bunker. So get to that right now. As some of you know, all of you know, none of you know, we do two shows a week, every Monday and Thursday. And we ask you to do a couple things to help us out. Tell your friends about us, and leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts, or you can pop on over to our Facebook page and leave us a review there, or head to thewritersjam.com 
and leave us a testimonial through the contact page. All of that helps us spread the word about what we're doing here. While you're at the site, there's a couple things you can do. We host a regular happy hour with authors. We do it through Zoom because there's a global pandemic, and you can find all the information out there. If you like the people that you hear on the show and you want to buy their books, we got a little bookshop. You can click on that link, go buy any book from any of the authors on the program. When you go through our link, two things happen. You support local and independent bookstores around the country, and we get a little scratch back. If you haven't listened to the program but still want to buy some books, we have a book review section where we write up book reviews of everybody's book on the program who we've read. We've had a lot of people. There's a backlog. We're getting to them. But there's about 25 or 30 that are going to be up by this weekend. We'll be adding a couple a week as we go along. You can also sign up for our monthly newsletter where you'll get book recommendations, reviews, podcast highlights, and other happenings around the web. The last thing you can do is you can support everybody on the Solid Listen Network. For just a couple bucks a month, you'll get commercial-free episodes, special happy hours, and some bonus content. Thanks for stopping by the bunker to spend some time with Max and I. Today is going to be a great episode. It's really important. I can't wait for you to hear it. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Cynthia Miller Idris. As a former writer and journalist, I get yeah. really upset when, uh, like, groups like the KKK or um, these sort of militias, which I think is what we were talking about. I'm like, these are yeah. not really militias. Like, these are people who are out yeah. with guns threatening people, and that is yeah. not what the Minutemen were. And right. we somehow right. don't right. talk right. about that. We, we refer yeah. to militia as if it's a thing. Right. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, that I remember that exchange now. Yeah, it was a good one. It was funny because, you know, for years and years, folks who work on the far right, the extreme far right, have been talking about militias in this way as patriot militias, right? It's a, it's a, if you look at the dictionary definition, there's another definition of it. And they are kind of, it's, it's an organizational form. And I think that's what I was saying is to differentiate them from like self-radicalized individuals who go off and do individual terrorist acts or the kind of groups that pledge allegiance to some other bigger hierarchy and have membership lists. Like these are kind of, so everybody in the, you know, intelligence community or, you know, countering uh, an intervention community, kind of folks like me know them, what we're talking about when we're talking about a militia, which is a small cluster of organized people who are heavily armed and usually anti-government. And so, but it's this year that for the first time, this huge discussion started happening about, why are we calling them militias and why aren't we calling them domestic terrorists? And there are kind of two different reactions to that, which I can get into. One is yours, which is the, you know, um, the, the issue of like, aren't we, isn't this the national guard or like, you know, there are other, there are other meanings of the word militia, but the other is basically that it's a whitewashing of what domestic terrorism is. And so, and that, you know, when it's white terrorists or extremists, we call them militias. And when we, you know, and when it's people with brown skin, we call them terrorists. And so, there was also this distinction about is this domestic terrorism? And my yeah. argument there is it's both, but you need, you know, there's a whole bunch of different things that are domestic terrorism. And it helps those of us who work on it to understand the different organizational forms because the way you try to address a militia is different than how you try to address the guy in his bedroom online radicalizing and getting bomb making equipment together, right? Like those are two different kinds of things. So it helps 
but but it's maybe not as helpful to the public. I think is what <laughs> what we're facing, right? Yeah. So. Well, and like as a you know, after nine eleven, I was in a newsroom and we had mm-hmm. huge discussions. In fact, sort of very famously at the time, uh, my copy the copy the copy chief and I nearly got into a fist fight in a meeting room because my family are firefighters. My cousins are firefighters. Mm-hmm. And there was the discussion of how do you refer to them, right? Like, are they yeah. heroes? Are they like, what were they? And on September 12th was probably not the time, you know, to be having that discussion when each of us had, you know, some things. And so like how you describe things. And even as we were talking then, like, are these terrorists? Are these freedom fighters? Right. Like, how do you describe what these people did? Right. You know, like that was a very real discussion in the media on September 12th. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. It always is. And it's, it matters a lot. These words matter and the, and the framing of it matters. And, you know, I think in the case of when we were talking about it, it was right after the Michigan governor yes. plot was foiled. And, and that was, um, you know, she herself was urging people to talk about it as domestic terrorism. And I think, I think there is a lot to be said for calling that what it is, which is domestic terrorism. I just think my argument is we also have to talk about them as militias because that's that's the organizational form that we understand how they organize. That relates a lot to the Second Amendment, right? And there's yeah. different kinds of networks online that facilitate militia and vigilante, you know, kind of engagement, then facilitate, you know, the guys who are networked on 8chan and talking about the great replacement. And, you know, that's yeah. a different, they're all domestic terrorism, terrorism in my view, but they're different kinds and it helps us understand how to intervene or how to prevent or how to monitor, surveil, whatever. It's so interesting, like, for, you know, uh, having grown up around those kinds of rural areas and, you know, having lots of conceal and carry folks and, and friends who I'm sure are out in those groups, uh, yeah. it, to me, the whole outcome of what they're doing is to intimidate and terrorize people. It's Absolutely. not about anything other than that, right? Like, yeah. they're not trying to make larger points. They're not trying to make systemic changes through the sort of channels that we think about stuff. And I think that was why I was like, look, these are not people who are working within a system. And, not, and even civil disobedience is within the system, right? Like, right. it's within right. saying, this, like, I will, civil disobedience is saying, I will go to jail because right. I will protest, right? And I will, I will do the things, and that is not what they're doing. In right, any right, of them, right. right? And so for me, it's just such a fascinating conversation and not you because I know that you've had extensive experience in this, but like people really jump through hoops to not call these white folks what they are doing. Absolutely, right? absolutely. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it's a constant, right? Like, you know, I had an op-ed out last year that was just called Stop Calling Far-Right Terrorists Crazy, right? Like it's, you know, it's, it's the immediate leap to mental health problems that you see when it's a white shooter. Now, there may well be mental health problems, sure. but mental health problems, you know, there's millions of people with mental health problems yeah. who do not radicalize and become mass shooters, right? So it becomes, it's a vulnerability that can be radicalized, and we can talk about that, but it's not the reason for the action, right? That radicalization still has to happen in most cases. I mean, there are, of course, a couple of cases where there's, you know, Really, you can't you can't pin down a political or religious or ideological motive at all. Um, but you know that was there was a vehicular attack in Trier this week um, that was awful and killed five people in Germany. That it, right now there's just no signs. The guy drove deliberately into a pedestrian zone. He was his middle of the day. Um, 
killed five people, injured another dozen, including you know, a baby was killed. It was just a terrible, terrible incident. And he was heavily drunk, had been living in his car, right? Like there's, and apparently had some mental health issues. And so right now, so far, now maybe some other stuff will come out about whether people were targeted or not, but because um, there's all kinds of things that, you know, women get targeted like in Toronto and in the sorority in California and the yoga studio. And a lot of times oh, that's right. not seen as a terrorist act it's seen as a, as a mental health problem until right. finally enough of those events happen that you start to see, oh, these women are being targeted. It's right. an ideology. So there's all kinds of ways that, that the catch-up happens later. But anyway. Yeah, no, this is, so this is why this is going to be a different interview than I think normally <laughs> I do because I don't know if we're going to go through your whole life just because when you cover right. this stuff, yeah. you know, your whole life becomes uh, right. a target for that, right? Like, yeah, that's it, right. And yeah. so going through all that stuff is, is is probably less interesting to me just because as we've talked about, there's a lot of stuff that we're just not going to talk about because why give those people fodder for that kind of stuff. Right. And, and how we came together was this discussion of this. And, and I think we're also at a time and place where this discussion is really important, uh, not only for the nation, but like on places like this, that this is not an overtly, well, it's not overtly political, except for that I'm a Democrat and make fun of Trump all the time. So it's, right. in that sense, it is. But I grew up around very traditional Republicans, yeah, like in, in, in the before times when like, you know, we would disagree on policy, we would disagree on the way, you know, think that things should happen. Um, you know, I don't think they were as progressive on race and gender and sexuality, but those are things you can talk about and fight about. And now we're at a point where it's like you are the enemy and there is no quarter for anybody. And so I think... Absolutely. This is the polarization, right? And I mean, I'm happy to talk about, you know, my childhood and those kinds of things in the past. It's the the contemporary stuff that I try to be protective of, but um, for unfortunate reasons. But but, um, in the, you know, I grew up in small town Pennsylvania, also heavily Republican area. And I agree, you know, I mean, I, I remember in seventh grade, being one of only two kids who in the mock elections yeah, yeah. for, for mom, you know, for, yeah. for uh, Reagan was for, winning the mock for, elections for us. Right, too. Exactly, yeah, like that. exactly. Right. And so like, <laughs> you know, there's, you could tell like kids just vote what their parents do. So yeah. that's, you know, at that time, that that's what that was. And um, I think that's been really helpful to me, you know, um, in the work that I do and trying to understand, um, you know, I still have a brother who lives there. I have he dropped out of high school. You know, I mean, there's I, I, a lot of his friends I still know. And and that kind of demographic is important, I think, to understand when we start looking at the polarization. But I agree. What One of the things that's happened is uh, a move from, you know, where you could disagree to a move where there's real us versus them yeah. thinking. And, and that us versus them thinking where there's like almost like a sacred and a profane or good and evil, like your existence is a dire threat to my existence. And that is actually like the first step to radicalization. When people start to feel like there's an existential threat where your existence puts my existence at threat. That's what you see with white supremacist terrorists. That's what you see with these militias, you know, patriot militias or the groups where there's the vigilanteism, this call to action, because they actually think they're being heroic. Right. And they right. think they're being heroic. They think it's immoral. They believe they're acting morally. And it's that's that framing that that motivates that kind of act is the dire us versus them. We are not in this somehow together. We're completely opposed. And that the more we see that happening, 
And unfortunately, it happens a lot. And your your and my exchange on Twitter is the total opposite of what usually happens. It's one of the reasons why it was so interesting because usually it's like, you know, totally we have that brief interaction and then it just goes, you know, goes the other way. Yeah. And and I always try to de-escalate, you know, and it's my goal on Twitter is like, and every so often it just doesn't work and I will block somebody, but usually not. Usually yeah. like, you know, I find that if you come in with just like, a, you know, just like, hey, this is, let me tell you about the evidence here. Let me tell you what, yeah. what you know, um, and, and you can actually kind of engage, but it's so easy not to. And I think it's so easy for people to polarize. And that's a lot of what we see in those kinds of platforms. I generally don't engage with people and argue on those platforms. Right. Yeah. People who aren't able to, and I'm recently in trauma therapy, so I'm, I'm only the last four years, like I think able to deescalate my own stuff. In that right. real time thing, when your identity is challenged, you one, cease to uh, assume best intentions from the person that you're talking to. And two, yeah. you dig in a hole and you climb in it and you're like, I'm not giving up this land. Right? Right. Like that's, Especially when you're not in person. And that's I think, what I mean. You know, in these social right. platforms. When you have a human being right in front of you, it's a whole different, you know, yeah. it's a whole different ballgame. But online, especially if people are anonymous, they're using an avatar or a different handle, like it's just, you know, it's just not productive. I mean, this is back to the domestic terrorism, you know, distinction. Yeah. I mean, the other the other problem I have with that whole designation of domestic terrorism, I don't like the term at all. I just call it terror. Terrorism, yeah. <laughs> so, right, and so like I feel like that gets lost. And right now, we're probably heading into the Biden administration, also going to see a move toward, you know, a federal domestic terrorism designation, which is lacking. We don't have it. It's very patchwork. States have different, you know, different ways yeah. of dealing with this. And I get that there's a desire to that to make it equivalent to Islamist terrorism to create the resource channels and that, you know, um, but I just feel like drop the, you know, drop international terrorism, drop domestic terrorism, because when we call it domestic, which by definition is terrorism motivated by domestic issues like right. race or ethnicity, they say, you know, you'd lose that, the fact that this is totally globally networked and, and that they are, you know, live streaming attacks, that they're using the same ideological frames, they're posting and sharing on the same online platforms, they crowdsource each other's, you know, initiatives, they use funding, they they have international YouTube channels to communicate. I mean, there's in so many ways, the global white supremacist movement is a global white supremacist extremist movement. And, um, and calling it domestic terrorism, I feel like just distracts from that. And it also, you know, prevents international organizations like even the UN or other agencies from from interfering or intervening oh. because they see it as interference in the domestic issues of member states. But when you see it as a global issue, actually that opens up a mandate for some of those global resources to engage on the intervention side, on the education side, and also on the, you know, kind of monitoring and support for counterterrorism work. So, you know, that I, I just, that's my kind of, soapbox that I that I often you know push in these meetings because I think a lot of folks who work on most of the folks who work on terrorism and extremism do not work you know especially on the white supremacist side they only work on it within one country and so yeah. they tend to think of it as a domestic issue but um it's not and I think you know there's certainly domestic elements to it but we have to see it as global if we're going to address it yeah I mean and you are uniquely situated to understand that because you're working 
you know, in Norway, here, like, like you're talking yeah. at the UN. So like, this is Rico, right? Like this, we got to treat this like, we got to yeah. treat this like a, like a global crime syndicate and not Absolutely. an individual crime syndicate. Well, and I think that's why somebody like me, you know, ends up relevant right now in a way that I never expected to be. <laughs> Nor wanted to be. So, right, right yeah. never wanted to be, right? No, no kid is like, I hope I grow up to battle white nationalism. Like, yeah, one of my friends, you know, said, you know, it's like, Sin, I, I got to confess, like, I thought of you as kind of a, a sad area studies scholar, like, all these years, right? And and I was like, I know, me too, right? Like, for <laughs> For 20, I mean, I was a German studies major in college. I then, you know, spent 20 years studying German vocational systems, right? And yes, I was studying school-based responses to hate within those systems. But really what I was interested in is, um, you know, and you could go right back to my childhood and see what happened. You know, my brother struggled, you know, to, to, to figure out a pathway for himself. And I thought, you know, there's a country, Germany, that that, that has other pathways for kids that don't go to college and that, you know, that you go into this apprenticeship system, two thirds of youth do it. And it's a real pathway toward not just working class jobs, but like any kind of technical yeah. job. You're a bank teller, you go through that system. Until so you're 30, was, right? Like you, it's, exactly, it's free right? until yeah, you're 30. It's free, you know, you're like, you, you, it's three and a half years of training. It's, yeah. yeah, you can, you know, you can go back and, I mean, and it's certification means something. The jobs are respected then, you know, because you're really well trained to be a plumber for three net, whatever it is. Yeah. Like, there's a real, real training certification there and a pathway for, for people. And so you don't have this kind of like, you know, lost period that happens to a lot of youth yeah. in the U.S. for a long time where you're trying to figure it out. And so I was interested in that. And then I landed in Germany you know, to do dissertation field work on the apprenticeship system, you know, right at a moment when there was a surge in, in far-right extremism and the construction trades are really affected. And that's one of the trades that I study. So, so I was hanging around with teachers for like a year and a half in schools who teach civics to 15 to 19 year olds, mostly who are wow. training to be scaffold builders and concrete layers. And they have, you know, this surge of right-wing extremists going on. And so the whole year they were dealing with how do we, how do we address it? And so I kind of became an accidental expert in, you know, school-based, <laughs> school-based responses to, to rising resurgent hate and, and in youth culture around right-wing extremism, like really understanding, because I was interviewing young people, I was hanging out in their classrooms, um, and I ended up writing a couple of books on that. And then, you know, eventually kind of the modernization of the scene that was happening there migrated across countries and came to the U.S. And you saw the kind of, you know, I'd written a book called The Extreme Gone Mainstreaming about, about the extreme gone mainstreaming about how, how you know, the kind of look uh, aesthetically more mainstream and um, the clothing had changed, the brands and the markets. And I turned that book in two months before Charlottesville happened and we saw oh, you know, kind of the khakis and the polo shirts here. So the last sort of four years for me, three, four years have been, you know, a radically different turn in my career. But I think it precisely because of that global part of it, it matters, right? And so a lot of times when I'm talking to the UN or to, you know, Congress and a testimony or whatever I'm doing, the journalists, they always want to know like, well, why is this? You know, they want that global dimension and there just aren't that many people who set out to do it because if you start out studying terrorism and extremism, you're kind of going to be locked into either looking at 
you know, the Islamist side of it, which yeah. is by de facto, it, you know, considered international or at the <laughs> domestic side. So that's why, you know, that's the other thing is I would just say like, get rid of the domestic and international distinction. Let's just call terrorism terrorism and understand politically motivated violence for what it is. Um, and I don't see what those divisions get us anyway, but well, know, that was a little rant. So you no, no, a little rant for me. So my writing partner moved to Berlin in 2003. So I used to spend my summers over there in, yes. in Germany. And then we would travel through Eastern Europe, you know, yeah. uh, uh, Hungary and, and Prague and sort of all of those places. And one of the most fascinating things, we were, we were sitting on Karl Marx Boulevard one day having a goddamn cappuccino. And like, we're looking and I just looked at John and I'm like, well, I've only ever seen this in black and white. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% back at hundreds of stores, and it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta, and I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, during Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. With Rakuten, membership is free. And when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Right, like I've only ever seen this, right. and it's weird to be right. drinking cappuccino here. And then yeah. we were surrounded by a bunch of 20-somethings who were, it was the middle of the day. And that was when I was introduced to this German system of education where you essentially could go and go back and get certified. And you had sort of a time period where that was valued. And so you both had time to sort of figure stuff out and then opportunity yeah. to go get educated. And so yeah. we would talk to people because it was after Bush got elected and people at that time were like, what's America thinking? Little did what's we know. Yeah. Did you have to explain the electoral college like a million well, times? Right? They were just, cons they were shocked that Bush got elected, that this Republican right. yes. got elected because they yeah. didn't yet know we could also go crazier than that in a few years. Right. And so we just began. wait. Yeah. Like you think this is bad. Uh, but that was when we, you know, I would talk to these young folks and, and um, sort of, you know, other writers and expats who lived there and, and finding out like, oh, this is a response to two really bad decisions that the Germans made in the last century. And right. so they thought, well, how do we make sure that we have, and, and it was the beginning of the rise of this, you know, 
Nazis were sort of slowly making their way back in, trying yeah. to protest, and there were like massive protests against them. And the right wing government in Hungary was coming in. And so when I'd visit there, like my friends and people that I met were like, you have to tell the world what's happening here because this sort of thing is coming back. Yeah. And I just, you know, so years later, as it sort of infiltrated here and as, you know, after we went through the second Gulf War, I just thought there's this whole thing in Eastern Europe that seems to be a bellwether for this stuff that we just, I mean, the Hungarians were desperate for us to bring back a message to the West that like, this is coming. Right. And you need to do yeah. something about it. Yeah. Yeah. And it did surge, you know, I mean, a lot of what I was seeing in the, at least in the modernization of it, which is what I really talk about in that last book and also in the new book, um, you know, of the way that youth culture gets kind of weaponized and the framed as the counterculture against the mainstream. And so the use of humor and wit and irony and satire and all the ways that the memes, you know, infuse kind of um, racist and misogynistic and, you know, um, anti-Semitic, Islamophobic, anti-immigrant content into them and kind of dehumanize. I mean, all the things that are happening, but in the guise of jokes, right? Um, is the same thing that we saw kind of happening in the guise of lyrics in the 1980s and 90s in, in, in music, but now it's not just like festivals and, you know, some guy in a garage like putting together a band, but they're, they're able to kind of use this online ecosystem to connect and spread much faster yeah. and also have kind of user-generated content in a whole different way. It's not just like somebody has to produce it and then you wait to consume it. You're also producing, you know, and, and contributing to memes and the little videos and TikToks and whatever is going out that is, you know, in any, in any platform, YouTube videos, like you yeah. can, anyone can create that content. And so that has both amplified the voice of what would have been, I think, a more fringe minority and created a much bigger swell of content itself. And that was, you know, happening in Germany and then moved over into, you know, Eastern Europe, Russia, across Western Europe, and then kind of showed up in the States. Although, of yeah. course, the States always had its legacy of white yeah, yeah, supremacy, yeah. right? I mean, it's foundational. <laughs> but this kind of, right, this 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 twist, basically, yeah. of, of taking it to a different level of kind of youth culture and white supremacist extremism, um, and then connecting it to the idea of a existential threat is came came here a little bit later um, than it showed up across Europe. And so I think you're right that there were kind of warning signs. And honestly, like for all those years that I was studying it in Europe, um, I didn't expect it to, I just didn't think it was, I mean, Charlottesville surprised me too, right? Yeah. And so, you know, I did not see that coming because I was never working in the States. There might've been people who were anticipating it, but I was, all my research was outside of the country essentially. And I just didn't see it coming. And so the last three, four years has really been about kind of educating most American parents, teachers, policymakers, you know, of, you know, what, what happened in the scene what happened in youth culture and what's happening now yeah. in it that is truly global that their kids are tapping into. Right? I mean, I think some of the reason, and this is like me sitting in my apartment with no idea if this is true or not, but it feels like when Trump came in, they removed all of the guardrails that said, look, we're not going to tolerate this. Like it's always been here, but the FBI literally had groups that were going out and trying and actively 
just, you know, arresting people and making sure these things didn't happen. And I feel like in 2016, all of that got shut down, removed. All the groups were not labeled as terrorist groups anymore. And suddenly there was just this release that allowed these things that existed in these little dark pockets of the web and places to openly come out and just do it with no repercussion. Yeah, I think that, you know, I think there are a couple of things that are important, I think, to for people to understand is one, that the exponential growth in hate groups started after Obama was elected. So there was this reaction yeah. to the election of the first African-American president and, you know, and the rapid kind of then the mobilization of the Tea Party after that and the kind of new waves of conservative right um, mobilization that was... Um, populist, right? And that populist kind of like anti-elite, um, you know, take the ordinary people and pit them against the elites, the coastal elites, right? right. And that was happening also at the same time globally. So we had yeah. these waves of populist, nationalist, elected officials coming into power in Hungary. And, that was when I was know, in Hungary. And, it was like 2009. Right, exactly. Like that was when literally exactly. taxi drivers, restaurant workers, like as soon as they found out I was American, yep. were all like, you need to tell the world what is happening. Exactly. And right, so changing the street signs, everything. Exactly. That's happening outside the country. You get yeah. Brexit happening. You get, you know, um, Brazil, India, you get other places around the world moving toward this populist, nationalist, anti-immigrant, anti-EU, anti-whatever. Um, and so the U.S. was not unique in that sense, but what it did in the U.S. by having Trump come in on a populist, nationalist kind of campaign, drain the swamp, anti-elite, you know, yeah. ironically, right? Like as if, you know, sort of pro-ordinary people. Um, right. And, right, by what you meant, ordinary white people too, right? right? So it's like, but, you know, sort of, and then legitimizing, normalizing, and mainstreaming the hate that had already been bubbling up, right? So I think what we saw is this surge of it, and then globally, the populist nationalism stuff, and then this legitimation, that's that's the Charlottesville was kind of the first sign publicly, I think, of the mainstreaming, and all of that through his campaign and speeches and all the incendiary and racist language legitimized, normalized, helped mainstream. And then we saw the mobilization of violence. Yeah. And so that's when you get, you know, Christchurch, I mean, again, still global, right? Christchurch, El Paso, Pittsburgh. Um, and that's when policymakers started to take notice. And so it wasn't until we really saw but did they? Christchurch, El Paso. They, well, I mean, we've had like nine hearings on Congress. They have held hearings on white supremacy in the military, white supremacy in um, law enforcement. I testified at one of those hearings on white nationalist terrorism globally. Like, so there, and then, you know, and then what you had after that was basically now a consensus of agencies, including DHS, finally admitting this fall that white supremacist extremism is the most lethal threat facing the nation, right? You get that. That's a huge deal. That took years to get that acknowledgement. It came too late and it's, it is a scratch in the surface of what we need but it is, I think you can't underestimate what it means to have, you know, the State Department, Justice, you know, DHS, like Congress putting forward legislation, even if it's not getting passed through yeah. the House, right? Like that basically <laughs> is calling it like it is, right? It is at least saying what it is. Now we need systematic responses to it. But 
and we're so far behind, right? And the, and it's evolving so quickly into other kinds of things, right? So you have QAnon, now you have that intersection with the anti-vaxxers, you have, you know, all kinds of new anti-shelter in place, anti-government extremist stuff mobilizing. But, but there's still, I think I, you know, I give them credit for calling it like it is finally, even if it came too late. And so can I ask a question about to, this? Yeah, yeah. Go for it. Yeah. So outside of policy, because I'm not convinced Mitch McConnell's going to, you know, we ever since the hazard rule got put in and, yeah. and Congress has decided that I will only, whatever party is in power will only bring legislation that all of the party supports, right? Like that I think is one of the biggest, yeah. so we blame McConnell, but like really this is a legacy right. of that hazard thing. So outside of policy, let's assume they're not going to yes. pass anything. Can places like DHS, can the FBI, can, can those places actually systemically begin to do something about this problem yeah. So the FBI, I think what the FBI can do, first of all, and, you know, I want to, it needs to be said that, that justice, Department of Justice and DOD have to systematically report and root out white supremacist extremism among their ranks. And that's can they not do that? Right? Can they do that without policy stuff? So they can, they need a mandate to do it. They, I mean, could they do it? Yes, probably. But I think <laughs> we do need to see those mandates and there are amendments demanding that going, but it's just nothing's been passed yet. But so I think on the one hand, you need to see that. And I do think we're going to move toward that. But, but I do think that in general, what the FBI is doing a decent job of is interrupting, infiltrating and interrupting organized yeah. white supremacist extremist groups. They've taken down parts of the base, it's home off and they broke up this yeah. militia plot. They're doing a good job, but the problem on that side, but the problem is, um, that a lot of what's happening in the radicalization to white supremacist extremism has nothing to do with organized groups. It's, mm. it's more, you know, self-radicalizing networks of individuals. So when you look at actual terrorist actors that have been responsible for the worst violence from Timothy McVeigh in 1995 to Dylan Roof and El, you know, El Paso and Pittsburgh and, you know, everything that we've had, none of those people were members of groups, you know, and they were motivated by the same ideology. They were radicalized by the same ideology, but they were not, you know, that you wouldn't have, the FBI wouldn't have been able to catch them by infiltrating a group and finding out that they were plotting and planning something within that group. And that is a much more difficult thing for law enforcement and security and intelligence side to do that. My argument is that can only be tackled through prevention. I don't see how, unless we want to really get into different level of infringement of civil rights that countries do, like in Germany, where you have much different kind of privacy tracking and free speech yeah. protections. Yeah. We, we don't want to do that in this country, right? We want our free speech and protections, and we want to not be, you know, prosecutable for having symbols or different kinds of slogans. Like in Germany, you'll be arrested if you said, you know, Heil Hitler or War Swastika. Yeah. We're not going to do that in this country. I understand that. We have different histories of free speech protection. So we can't expect law enforcement, I think, to be able to catch individuals in their private lives um, from, you know, the same way that they can interrupt groups. That's my own argument, is I would say that's where we need much more investment in prevention. That's terrifying. Yeah, I mean, that's not a very happy scenario given how little, <laughs> given how little money we invest into prevention, yeah. right? Um, but also... I mean, if you believe, and again, this is me on the outside, like that they all, you know, the, the sort of saying in law enforcement has been, you can't stop a single person who wants to do a thing. 
Right. Like that's well, just not a thing law, you can do. Law enforcement is like, they have to get it, you know, basically the intelligence and security services have to get it right every single time. Yeah. But terrorists only have to get it right once. Yeah. Right? And so, you know, it's an unreasonable expectation, especially if we don't want to live in a police state, which we don't, right? Yeah. We want. And so what do we expect you know, what can we expect? What's reasonable given what we know about civil rights violations, given what we know about infiltration, not at scale, but even a small number of infiltration of white supremacy, you know, extremism within law enforcement departments or the military is hugely problematic, right? We can't rely on law enforcement as the solution to this problem, nor do we think that actually carceral solutions are going to help the situation because people get further radicalized once they're in prison. So you get 17 or 18 year old going to prison and then they're in an Aryan Brotherhood prison gang, you know, yeah. and then what, right? They're there for 10 years and come out and they're maybe more dangerous than they right. were going in. So I think we need, you know, if we really want systematic solutions, it has to be preventing carceral solutions, preventing, we don't need the band-aid of law enforcement to just get more tools and better tools that might, you know, be not the argument that law enforcement would make, but, you know, maybe they need more resources and tools too, because I do want them to continue to break up and infiltrate the groups that are plotting terror attacks. Sure. But on the side of the, of ordinary citizens, not involved in groups who are self-radicalizing on the internet, we need a different level of intervention. We need teachers and coaches and parents and youth group leaders yeah. and mental health counselors who know what's going on, who understand what they're exposed to online and know strategically, like what are good ways to build off ramps really early on in the process. You know, it's interesting because I taught middle school and high school, like in my previous iteration, like my background is actually as a teacher in early childhood education and stuff. And so like I have traveled this weird circuitous route to being a writer or whatever. And I've always told folks like the, the problem kids always found their way to me, the kids that were the, because I had come like, because I was a problem child myself. And, you know, I think that they came there because they knew, I I don't think I know because there was a safety in that. And they knew I wasn't going to tell them it was going to be fine. You know, any of that bullshit. It was like, look, this could turn out really bad. You have to make some choices and then power through. And I think that it's so important. Part of the reason I wanted to have you on was because we don't even talk about this enough for parents to know and people to know this is actually a thing you need to engage in. And you exactly. can't just... Yeah. And you have to be able to recognize, you know, if you have a kid coming into your dinner conversation and using a phrase like, you know, repeating a meme that is a Holocaust denial meme, right? This is something that happened to someone I know. Or, and then when the parent asked them about it, you know, said, oh, it's just a joke. Everybody says it. Well, guess what? Like, instead of shaming them, right, which is a lot of parents' first reactions, that's not our family value. We don't believe that, right? What if you ask them, where did you see it? You know, how did you, how does it get to you? And you start to understand the circulation of content that your kids are exposed to. 25% of them, about a quarter of kids are going to be exposed in online gaming to white supremacist propaganda. Holy shit. Are you kidding me? 25%? 25%. So like, you know, and I have people telling me like, they'll be in a room, a classroom of kids, you know, ask them how many of you have seen a meme that is racist, right? Every one of them raises their hand, of course, right? Well, yeah. (laughs) People just think they're not exposed, but they are exposed. And if parents aren't talking to them, teachers aren't talking to them to provide them alternative views, how do they know, right? A lot of white parents, a 
approach this in a colorblind way as if everybody's <laughs> equal and we're just gonna right we're just gonna yeah we don't you know so one of the things I heard a parent say you know um whose kid had done something awful he said well we didn't I realize now that we didn't raise our kid to be racist but we didn't raise him not to be racist right right and and that was a hard realization that came very late for that person after that child had been arrested and you know and um you know that's a worst case scenario for parents to have a child who's done harm like that but so I you know I don't want to say it in a way that scares people like this is but like if you're not actively engaging it um you're just the internet is where the kids are going to find out yeah it's the new playground opinions exactly right it's like you wouldn't like but it's a global playground exactly and now with a hundred million kids, you know, through college age online, um, all the time, almost for their lives. Like the amount, I mean, we know child exploitation numbers are up by the millions. It's terrible, you know, and, and I'm guessing it's not even other kids, right? Like if I look, I was an early child, like I know how young kids learn and on the internet, you don't know who's on that you just oh, don't these know. are definitely targeted yeah. recruiters. Yeah. yeah, they know they're yeah. this is a strategy, right? Yeah. This is a strategy. I just made myself on, sound creepy, I realize. But no, I know, <laughs> no, not at all. But it's yeah, no, but I mean this is this is a tactic. It's yeah. a tactic, and that's where online gaming is a tactic. And you know, you and and uh you know, we have heard um former extremists talking about their role as a recruiter to go into online games where kids spend time. And they first work to undermine the kids' belief in their parents' authority yeah. before they start to introduce fake news. Premises, right, exactly. And this is the same way that any kind of grooming, as they yes. use that word in the UK, exploitation. You know, you don't necessarily know what direction grooming can happen. It can be sexual exploitation, but it can also be extremist propaganda, manipulation, radicalization. And so, you know, are most kids going to end up fine? Yes, right. But but it's you know it's one percent yeah, is a large is number. One percent is a large number, and it's you know it's this is where you know in the 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 German you know um, national governments investigating uh, white supremacists or you know what they call right wing extremist um, engagement in the military and intelligence services. They've got fourteen hundred cases going on right now. It's a lot of cases, which represents less than one percent, though. And but their defense minister basically said, you know, or the minister of the interior, look, every case is a scandal, right? And you have to see every case is a scandal when you have somebody who's trained and armed, you know, engaging in extremist propaganda materials. And I think if we saw it that way, every child, you know, deserves to be protected from this kind of propaganda yeah. and the rhetoric and the manipulation and the pathways toward extremism. And and I think every parent wants to protect, most parents want to protect their kids from that. And, you know, it's, again, this is me on the outside, but just, it's not just kids, right? Like, I, I got friends that are around my age who, yeah. like, QAnon and Plandemic, I mean, they, yeah. like, we're not speaking right now because I'm a bully for telling them that Plandemic's not real. And yeah. they're intelligent adults who have been in this ecosphere. Yeah, we have actually my research lab has a report on QAnon coming out next week, which I'll uh, alert you to on Twitter. But it's um, this QAnon is a whole different beast. It's very scary because of how rapidly it radicalizes people. And, you know, whereas white supremacist extremist propaganda does usually take years to radicalize someone to violence, at least maybe 18 months, um, 
you know, not that violence is the only bad outcome of that, but, you know, in terms of um, endangering others. And QAnon is, is people go down the rabbit hole much faster in a matter of weeks, and yeah. uh, particularly under the pandemic conditions. And, and they're older. They're more middle-aged. They tend to be, you yes. know, um, people's parents, right? And so we got, I got Teen Vogue called me, right? Like who, I never in a million years thought I'm giving an interview <laughs> to Teen Vogue. But they're doing some great journalism. They are doing some great journalism. And they called me because, you know, after years of getting the question from parents and teachers about what they can do to help kids um, who are yeah. radicalizing. Kids are- Teen Vogue was getting questions from kids. Yeah. What do I do about my parents yeah, yeah. who are radicalizing into QAnon, right? I mean, what a heartbreaking question. Yeah, yeah. Right? These teenagers who are like, I don't know what to do. You know, my mom thinks she's going to be a warrior saving children from an international trafficking ring. Like, you know, and um, I mean, my, my response was like, it's a totally different set of advice to kids. Like, it's not your job to fix your parents. And that's where I think this- this network of other adults that I talk about is so important. Like every child should have ideally multiple adults in their lives yeah. besides their parents. You know, it's a teacher, a youth group leader, a coach, uh, a, an employer, a, a friend's parents, right? Aunts and uncles, grandparents, like there should hopefully be other adults in their lives who can help watch out for this stuff, but also can be a resource if their own parents radicalize like yeah. this. It's, it is it is a scary time and one that I can say, you know, when I started at Wired in 98, and there's been a big reckoning of, of people my age who wrote back then, like, we didn't realize. We did, not, right. we did not do a good enough job back then about writing, not just about how the democratization of information is good, but about the safeguards that we need to put in because it's also bad. And I know, like, you have to run because you have more people wanting to talk to you. So the, the new book, right, is Hate in the Homeland. That's the one that just came that's out. That's right, Hate in the Homeland, the new, uh, the new book. Right. Yeah, and so uh, that's out now. It's out now. It just came out last month. It's out in Europe this week, um, was released. And so, uh, but in the States, it's been around for about a month now. Yeah, and then you run the Polarization and Extremism Research and Innovation Lab at American University, yeah? That's right. Yeah, we test interventions. So that's, you know, we are trying to figure out empirically what would work to prevent people from being susceptible to misinformation, disinformation, propaganda, extremist narratives. Um, and so we have a bunch of different, have a vaccine hesitancy project, QAnon project, we work on white supremacy, we have anti-government extremism work. Um, and we're using a lot of, we have an animated video on anti-government extremism, trying to use different different um, visual modes of connecting with the public and trying to figure out what would help people better understand what's going on around them. Yeah, and it's it, this is some of the most important work being done because, again, as somebody who's been online for since 84 and have been writing about this stuff, the other side is using this stuff. Like the psychological warfare that's happening, they're not, they are not waiting around. They are not yeah. going through channels. They are not, um, you know, following rules. They are out actively recruiting and undermining and doing all this stuff. So God Definitely. love you and the work that you're doing because it is, Thank you. Um, it's so important. And I'm so happy that we had a chance to uh, meet on Twitter and have this conversation. It is different than what Me I normally too. do. It was great. Yeah, yeah. I really enjoyed it. And uh, thanks for having me. It was great to meet you on Twitter and I will tweet at you when we have these new reports out next week too. that would be great it's now going to be my mission to get these things out to everybody in the network and, and, and all my teacher friends and all that stuff thanks brad appreciate it so much that was dr cynthia miller idris 
Her book, Hate in the Homeland, The New Global Far Right, came out last year. I really hope you pick it up and read it because we are facing a very real threat in this country. You can also find toolkits, research, and other information at the Polarization and Extremism Research and Innovation Lab, which is called Peril, through American University. Give that a Google, and you're going to find a whole treasure trove of information. Before we get out of here, just a couple of reminders. If you like what you heard, do us those two favors we talked about at the top of the show. Leave us a review and tell your friends about us. While you're at it, don't forget to check out the other programs on the Solid Listen Podcast Network, including the flagship Mother May I Sleep With podcast with host and our Solid Listen Podcast queen, Molly MacLear. Throughout the rest of January, was just about another week, we'll be bringing you new episodes every Monday and Thursday. Starting in February, we're moving the jam to Wednesdays. So get yourself subscribed to wherever you listen to podcasts. And remember, if you can't wait for the next episode, you can always catch us on Twitter and Instagram at The Writer's Jam. Until the next time, I will see you around the internet. best content for kids is both entertaining and educational. And with 5 for 5 Trivia, not only do kids get to learn from each week's brand new theme, they also get to challenge themselves by playing trivia. A Parents' Choice Foundation Silver Award winner, this fast-paced trivia podcast is perfect for kids ages 6 to 12. It's released five times a week, so it's a quick addition to your daily routine and a fun challenge to get five out of five right on trivia topics like animal sounds, time travel, fictional ghosts, and underwater exploration. So get your high fives warmed up and check out Five for Five Trivia, available wherever you listen to podcasts. Podcasts.